Well, Father, we come before you anticipating what it is you have for us today. Father, every time the word is preached, it does not return void. Every time we sit under your teaching, we understand that of all the text, you have this one for us. Of all the days to be sitting under this text, this is the day chosen for us to hear the teachings of Jesus. And I pray that we will listen attentively with a submissive heart, that as the song we just sang um, proclaims that you will have your way with us, Lord, that we'll understand that all power is invested in you, and that's a good thing. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, I have shared this many times before, but growing up, my favorite superhero was Superman. I remember my first cinematic experience was watching Superman, where Christopher Reeve was Superman, Lex Luthor was played by Gene Hackman, and Marlon Brando played Superman's father. Awesome movie, by the way. Timeless classic, still recommend it. They didn't rely on all the CGI stuff. They used strings and stunts. It was awesome. But if you don't know the backstory of Superman, Superman was born on an alien planet which was about to be destroyed. His father had enough foresight to send him to Earth, and he landed in Smallville, Kansas. That's right. He's a proud Kansan. His adopted parents figure out that he has superhuman ability, and they train him to use his power for good. I remember after watching it, I I would take one of my locks of hair and make the Superman S curl like he did, I successfully persuaded my parents to buy me Superman underoos. You know, I was, I was 16. I had some agency in that. <laughs> but um, I always felt like a super, a superman. So it was with great interest when Superman versus Batman or Batman versus Superman came out, I think maybe seven or eight years ago. And it's a real interesting premise where you have Batman, who's kind of iconic superhero, a good guy, wants to fight and kill Superman. And you wonder, why would Batman want to kill Superman? I mean, Superman is virtuous, kind, noble, he's handsome, and he's from Kansas. Well, the reason why is Superman has power. Superhuman power, such power that no one can stop him if he decides to use it. Therefore, Batman, who's a mere mortal, seeks to take him out because no man should be vested with that kind of power. Isn't that interesting? We, we live in a, in a day and age where we are inherently suspicious of power. On the right or the left, it doesn't really matter, right? On the left... You're suspicious of the power that is imbued in racist institutions. On the right, we're afraid that the government's going to come and take away our guns, right, and take away our power. Being powerless is one of the worst feelings in the world. We never want to feel vulnerable. When you're in the presence of power, what emotions do you feel? What kind of dynamics are at play? Well, turn with me to the life of Jesus and... We're going to look at what emotion dominates these people when they're in the presence of power. 
We'll start in the run-up text, Luke 8, 22 to 25. One day, he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. Did he catch that? They were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. And so the disciples were terrified in the storm. But it's almost like they had a greater fear when they're standing in the presence of the man who stilled the storm and rescued them with his power. Power generates fear. And they asked the question, who then is this? And this next passage, the text for today, answers this question. Starting in verse 26, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, they met, there they met a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, and and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened... They fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, in the previous passage, Jesus demonstrates his power over the natural world. 
In this passage, Jesus demonstrates his power over the supernatural world. No one can stop him. He's more than a Messiah who will have political power. He is the Son of God who has omnipotent power. He says the word, the storm stops. He says the word, the demons are gone. This is a powerful man. And when you are in the presence of power, the natural dynamic that takes place is fear. Now, sometimes this fear... Um, can be expressed in reverence, where you are drawn to the person with the power. You want to be on his good side. You want to impress him. You want to take comfort that this person with power considers you his friend and he is your ally. There is a certain fear when you encounter power, especially the power of Jesus, where you are drawn close to him. You want to be near him. But there's another kind of fear that comes with power. And it's the peer, it is a fear that is repulsed, the fear that wants to flee or fight because you are afraid. Now, fear is not necessarily a pleasant emotion, right? You all know what it's like to, to, be, to be scared. Your heart accelerates, your muscles tense, your eyes narrow, the adrenaline surges. It could be brought on by watching a scene in a movie Perhaps an encounter with a grizzly bear. You might be taking your teen out for the first driving lesson. (laughs) The presence of fear is real. And when that happens, there's a desire for self-protection, right? Where fear is a result of your own vulnerability and your lack of power. And here we see two responses to fear. We see the fear that pushes Jesus away, but you also see the fear that wants to draw close to Jesus. And this brings up the whole question. When you encounter the power of God expressed in Jesus, what kind of fear do you have? When you encounter the power of Christ, what dynamic does that play in your life? Do you push him away or do you draw him close? So this is a cautionary tale. We're going to look at two people who push him away. You see the demons push him away. You see the fear of the town that pushes him away. But then you see the fear of the man who is drawn close. When you encounter the presence of power, what kind of fear do you have? So let's look at the fear of the demons first, starting in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. So after stilling the storm, Jesus crosses the lake, and he is in Gentile territory. These are not Jews. These are not God's chosen people. And in this case, you have a man who's possessed by not just one demon, many demons. We'll get to that later. And we learn that for a long time, he had worn no clothes And he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. This is a man who has been dominated by demons to the point where he no longer lives at home, but in the unclean area of the tombs. He is pushed away from his town. He's pushed away from his family. 
you, you see there's a certain indignity with him, right? Where, where he's not wearing clothes anymore. He is exposed. He is humiliated. He is isolated because he's been dominated by the presence of demons. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. This is the case of the bully encountering a bigger bully, right? This is the case of the demons that have terrorized and overpowered this man, realizing that they are in the presence of a powerful force and they are terrified. And they beg Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, they have some supernatural knowledge where they know exactly who Jesus is. Now, before you get too impressed, you need to remember James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. The demons know instinctively that we're in the presence of Jesus, we're in the presence of God. He has way more power than they can even imagine. And Jesus is currently wielding his power in verse 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. He is purging this man. He is overpowering the demons who have overpowered this man. Now, what's really interesting about all this is Jesus is in the presence of a very powerful entity. It's described in verse 29. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. There's almost um, an incredible Hulk dynamic here, isn't there? When he's docile, they're able to chain him, bind him, but when the demons come upon him, he has a superhuman strength, probably ripped his clothes off, that's why he's naked, and driven into the desert. We learn from other accounts that this demonic monster was terrorizing the village. No one would want to pass this way because you might be close to this demon-possessed man. This guy became a monster, a menace to society. And so, Jesus is standing face-to-face -face with the monster. And unlike the townspeople who are afraid of this monster, this monster is afraid of him. And then Jesus asked him, asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, and my personal pronouns, they, them. Let that sink in. That, that's comedic gold for you, right? This is one of the few times where that actually works. And he uses they and them throughout the rest of the passage. Name's legion, for many demons had entered him. The term legion usually referred to a cadre, well, not cadre, but a group of 6,000 soldiers. So this is one man Jesus against a monster and one man Jesus against thousands of demons. The odds are not in his favor, agreed? But they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The abyss is a place uh, of judgment. We learn about the abyss in Revelation 20, verse 1. 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, that's the abyss, and a great chain. They do not want to be cast into the outer darkness, into the abyss, cast away from this realm and be put in eternal bondage and prison. They did not want to go to the demonic dungeon. They knew that Jesus had the power to send them there. And so they beg for an alternative. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on a hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, and so he gave permission. Now, I would have loved to have seen this, right? 2,000 pigs, according to Mark, that's a lot of bacon. Jesus gives permission. The demons leave this man, and now you have a serious case of deviled ham. <laughs> the dads laughed. The mothers rolled their eyes. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now, some commentators have a hard time with this because Jesus is, this is destructive. It's destroying somebody's livelihood. We have to remember that, that pigs were not kosher. This was a promised land, and he had a herd of pigs which were considered an unclean animal. This would be like Jesus burning down a cannabis field, right? That's where you get marijuana. They shouldn't have been growing it anyway. This is ultimately a, a judgment on the demons. And so what happened to the demons? Well, they were judged. Some people think that they actually were no more. They perished with the pigs. But at a minimum, we know according to Matthew 12, 43, that without a host, they passed through the waterless place seeking rest but find none. Essentially, they were judged. They were judged. And when the herdsmen saw it, we saw what happened. They fled and told it in the city and in the country. Now, they were not only terrified of what they saw, but if 2,000 pigs went into the lake on your watch, you would make sure that everybody knows that it wasn't me, right? It wasn't me. So they went around and told everybody, this is what Jesus did. Yeah, they all disappeared. If you see some pork, you know, bobbing up and down the lake, that wasn't me. That was Jesus. You see, the demons were afraid. They were in the presence of a power greater than themselves, and they were tormented by that. They felt their vulnerability. If they had the power to kill Jesus at that moment, do you think they would? Absolutely. Secondly, you see the fear of the town. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. This man who was wild and supernaturally strong, who tormented them, is now docile in his right mind, no longer crazed from all the demons. He is dressed, and he is sitting down 
at the feet of Jesus, learning from him. They're just having this normal conversation. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. So they see the miracle, the demon-possessed man, he's healed, but then they look into the lake and they see floating pork, bloated pigs, quite a scene. And what is their response? Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. Now, it's interesting how they ask him to leave. They knew they were in the presence of great power. You don't try to lynch somebody with great power. They knew they were outgunned and outmatched by the mysterious stranger across the lake and did all these things. So what they do is they beg him, they ask him, they plead with him to, to leave because they were seized with great fear. Now, You would think that when they saw this, even if you lost a bunch of pigs, you might think, a man who could do this, maybe he can have a healing ministry. Think about the economic impact of that. If you restore sight, the ability to walk, the ability to hear, if you were to take away the, these debilitating illnesses, cast out more demons... Wouldn't that be a good thing? But the presence of power was not interpreted as a good thing. Instead of drawing close to the one who has power, they want to drive him away. Now, why was this the case? Well, given the amount of people, everyone probably had a different reason. But I think there's probably three primary ones. Number one, they feared financial loss. Losing 2,000 pigs, that is a lot of money to be lost. And if he was willing to do that, no crop no herd, no profession is safe. In Ephesus, remember in Ephesus, Demetrius the silversmith was so perturbed at this growing group of Christians that was actually making a significant dent in the idol-making business. And because of his financial self-interest, he and all the other silversmiths all rallied together to try to expel the Christians so that they could still keep things going financially. Money talks, right? That might have been one area where we need to do what we can to protect our assets. Secondly, there may have been a fear of judgment, right? Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasians, this is Gentile territory, Asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. Now, if this was a Jewish area, you would think that some of the people would have been licking their chops, right? Because they were under the oppression of Rome. They were looking for some Messiah to come who would use his power to liberate the Jews and restore them to the golden age promised by God to David. But here you have a Jew who comes in and he judges the Gentiles by doing away with their non-kosher meat. They feared that there was judgment to come. They did not want to be in the presence of that kind of power. Or thirdly, I think mainly they just feared the power that Jesus had. They feared the power that he had over the spirit world. 
And to understand this, I think it's helpful to understand how the religion worked for the Gentiles at that time. You see, they were idolaters. They never worshipped one god, they worshipped many gods, right? So if you uh, were a, a Greek, you would worship the sky god by the name of Zeus, right? You'd worship Poseidon, who was the god of the, the oceans. You, if you had a crush on somebody and wanted them to fall in love with you, you might make a sacrifice to Aphrodite, and what's really interesting is that all these gods were removed. They would live on Mount Olympus, but you'd have some contact with them every time you went into one of their temples. And these gods weren't self-sufficient. They needed food. They needed help from humans. And so you could bribe them. You can flatter them. You can have one god be pitted against another god. None of these gods were all powerful. There was some agency that all these humans had. But in this case, you're in the presence of a powerful, one true God who can do anything. He cannot be bribed. He can't be flattered. There's nothing that you can offer him. You are completely at his mercy. He's beyond any manipulation. This is a man who could take on 2,000 demons and win. He's a man who can overcome the supernatural terror that terrorized them for so long. Frankly, when they encounter that great power, it's too much for them, and they would rather have him go away, right? This is Batman versus Superman. If the power can be used for good, why can't it be used for evil as well? Get him out of here. So they drive him away. The fear causes them to distance themselves from Jesus. But then you see the fear of the man, verse 35. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, was this man afraid? Well, you can tell from his proximity that he's actually drawn near to Jesus. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and when Jesus goes ahead and honors their request, so he got into the boat and returned... What does the man do? Verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. He followed Jesus. Wherever Jesus goes, this is where the man wants to be. Now, what's fascinating about this is when the demons ask, uh, can you expel us into the pigs? Jesus says, okay. When the townspeople ask Jesus to, to leave, he says, okay. When this man asks, can I go on the boat with you, what does he say? He says, no. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. He wants to be with Jesus. But Jesus says, there is a purpose for your life. There is a calling. You are to bear witness. They have pushed me away, but I don't want to leave them without witness. You will be the one who will talk about what God has done. And what does this man do? He obeys. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, what was he supposed to say? He's supposed to talk about how much God has done for him, and he tells how much Jesus has done for him. Is he being disobedient? Notice the intentional juxtaposition between Jesus and God. This man has a high view of Jesus. 
he has a high view of Jesus. This is a man who is drawn to Jesus. He's able to see Jesus for who he is, and he loves him and comes to him. The presence of power creates a dynamic that either draws people to it or repulses people from it. You see, we live in a day and age where I think some people have a a love-hate relationship with God. They love to think about God. They're intrigued by God. They are spiritual but not religious. But when they see God as powerful, it can trouble them. Now, Nate Phipps tipped me on to a, a video that was a promotion for Shark Week. And Shark Week and Tornado Week are my favorite documentary weeks, by the way. But in this one, there's a, I, I, they're out in the ocean, and this Australian guy named Jimmy, he's always a Jimmy, is in a, has a special shark cage made that's about this wide, maybe about this long, made out of thin plexiglass with some floaties on the end, and, and it fills up with water. So he is in the shark cage with a snorkel and goggles, and he is hoping to see some great white sharks. Jimmy loves sharks. And so, to his delight, a 15-foot great white shark starts encircling the shark cage. And Jimmy loves this. He loves the shark from the safety of the shark cage. But then the music turns. And this is why you watch it in the documentary, right? Something is about to happen. The shark starts bumping the cage, and Jimmy's like, what's going on? And then the shark dives down deep and comes up suddenly and actually breaks through the bottom of the shark cage. Unbelievable. Awesome. Jimmy lives, by the way. That's why I can tell the story. And he just makes a slight maneuver, and he just escapes the open mouth of the great white shark. And now... Jimmy's in the open water with a great white shark. Now, at that moment, if Jimmy had the means of killing the shark, do you think he would? But when Jimmy's on the boat beforehand, he's like, oh, protect the great white sharks. Let's study them and get some research. But now that he's in the open water with a great white shark who's clearly angry with him, he has a very different disposition. Do you see it? See, when, when power is restrained and you feel a sense of agency and control, it's very easy to love sharks. That's why we like watching Shark Week on TV, right? And a lot of people, they like the thought of God and they like the idea of God from a shark cage. And I think there's a couple ways that they do this. One, there's a movement to want to diminish God. When God's pliable, he's a pliable grandfather, and his purpose for his existence is to do what? It's to make you happy. He gives you total free will to live however you want to live without consequence, and get this, he will not interfere with your life unless you ask him to. Right? That's the theological shark cage. 
But then you read a passage like this where Jesus has a power over the spirit world. He has a power over oceans. Uh, When you read more passages that talk about a big God theology, you don't want to believe that Jesus would actually judge people or send people to hell. That really bothers people. The prospect that God is sovereign in salvation assaults the sense of self-determination and agency. We don't want to be at the mercy of God, right? Big God theology is often offensive because the shark cage is broken and you are vulnerable and you are completely at God's mercy, right? People try to diminish God. That is one way of dealing with their fear. Oh, there's nothing to fear. He's just a cosmic grandpa. Second way they might react to the prospect of a powerful God is they darken God. Now, Martin Luther grew up believing in God. You can say that he feared God. He believed that he can earn his way into the good graces of God by being the best Catholic possible. He obeyed all the rules. He confessed all of his sin, and then some. He devoted his life to serving God in the monastery. He would read the Bible, study the Bible. He would try to be good so that God would, in turn, reward his goodness. But the more he tried, the more he understood that he fell short, that he can maybe mitigate some of the external actions, but not the internal ones, and he knew he was in trouble. And do you know what emotion this created? I'll let him tell you. One day he was asked, Brother Martin, do you love God? Do you know what he said? Love God. You ask me if I love God. Sometimes I hate God. I see Christ as a consuming judge who is simply looking at me to evaluate me and visit affliction upon me. He had a dark vision of God. See, a lot of times people, they buy the big God theology They understand that he is the judge of the heavens and the earth. They will never deny that, but internally they'll like it. There's almost a a silent contract and expectation that's made with God. If I do good, God will do me good. Remember Job, a righteous man? All these catastrophes happen to him. And his counselors sit around and ask him, so what did you do? Did he get vaccinated? Were you following him with your whole heart? Have you been giving to the church? Why has this catastrophe happened to you, Job? And a lot of times you're drawn to that because There's this idea that we can control our own fate, right? If I do good, God will do me good. It's a quid pro quo with God. And sometimes the presence of tragedy reminds us that it actually doesn't work that way. God will be merciful on who he's merciful on. He will be the one who will decide your fate. And so many of these people, perhaps they received a life-changing diagnosis. Perhaps they lost their job. And and you know what? They're not going to walk away from their faith... But inside, they know they're in the presence of power, power outside of their control. They know that they're vulnerable. Uh, Perhaps they have some unwanted 
um, sin in their life. They struggle with same-sex attraction. And, and they've been doing everything to try to get that away. And, and they're going to be obedient. They're going to do it. But inside, why has God let this happen? I done, after all I've done, God, God breaks the shark cage by making it very clear, I don't work that way. There's not a you do this and I do this. I am not controlled by your obedience and your actions. And so, like Luther, do you love God? Well, sometimes I hate him. Sometimes there's resentment. They darken their view of God. They feel like they're in a toxic relationship with God. And some of you have been there. You know it. So how do you get out of that? Well, one, there is something to acknowledging the power of God, and it's good that you're doing that. But two, it's important to understand where these dark thoughts about God come from. In the garden, God is accused of evil. Genesis 3.1 the Satan approaches Eve and said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And then he accuses the God of envy when he basically says, let me find it here, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God doesn't want you to have all the power. He wants to keep it to himself. He wants to keep all knowledge to himself. How selfish of him. He's inviting Eve to judge God, not to be judged by God. Right? And when you judge God, there's a sense of agency there. There's a sense of power that you can feel. I know a lot of times modern atheists will try to attack Christians with the problem of evil. Do you know the problem of evil? You have a, a good God who's all-powerful and the presence of evil. Now, if there's evil and God is all-powerful, he can't be good because he allows evil to exist. If there's evil and God is all good, then he can't be all-powerful because otherwise evil would not exist. So how do you explain an all-powerful God who allows evil to exist? Well, there must be a dark side to him. And so he is slandered. Never mind the fact that he can use evil for a better purpose and for a good purpose. There is a desire to want to judge God, to diminish God, to stand in judgment over God. And that's really the first step to unbelief, isn't it? That's the fear that drives you away from God, that makes you afraid of God, where you resent his power. The townspeople were afraid and they drove him away. Contrast that with Peter earlier in this book. Luke 5, 4 through 8. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, remember this? Put out into the deep and let your nets, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But Simon Peter saw it, and he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, 
For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Notice how he was afraid. He saw the power and he was afraid. Do you remember what Jesus did? He said, from now on you'll be catching men. He should be afraid, but Jesus reassures him that you don't need to be afraid. Now, how could that be? I mean, truth be known, all of us should be afraid of God. God cannot be tamed by anything that we do. The only thing that mitigates God's power is his own character. It's at his discretion that he decides to use or not to use power, to exercise or not exercise his wrath, to extend mercy or not to extend mercy. But what he did was this Jesus who showed this great power actually surrendered his power 2,000 years ago on the cross. Think about how powerless Jesus would have been on the cross. He allowed himself to be whipped, scourged, betrayed, accused, mocked, ridiculed, and ultimately crucified. He allowed the wrath of God that was due to you to be placed upon him. And what is the result of that? All the anger that is due to you was actually placed on him so that in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus will never receive the angry wrath of God. There is no condemnation. But there's even something more, a greater promise in Romans 8, 14 through 17. For those who are led by the Spirit, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Those who are in Christ, you're no longer an enemy of God. You're a son and daughter of the king. You're part of the spiritual family. And you think about that young son who is bullied in the neighborhood, and then they find out that his dad is the left tackle for the Kansas City Chiefs. There's a safety with that, right? If you are someone who belongs to God, who has become a Christian, you have the most powerful ally in the world, and safety is always found in drawing close to this powerful force. Agreed? Now, if you are not a Christian... If you have refused to submit to God's authority and power, if you live a life that defies Him constantly, you should be afraid. For if you go on sinning willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, for our God is a consuming fire, right? If you are against God, He's against you, and He's the worst enemy in the universe, and He will win and conquer every time. But for those who surrender their own power their own desire to want to live and control their own life and yield to Him fully, they're welcomed into a spiritual family and you can draw close to God because He'll always use His power for your good. You find refuge in His power. You love hearing about God's power because if God is for you, who can be against you, agreed? And you can claim this promise in Romans 8, 38-39. I'll close with this. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, you, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The presence of power and the power of God is one of the greatest comforts for the Christian because if you draw near to Him, there is no power on earth that will separate you from Him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for Your power, the power displayed to us in this miracle and much more. And Father, I pray that all of us will be aware of your power, but also your character and how you use your power to liberate a man who is tormented by demons. Lord, we look forward to the day when your kingdom comes and you will expel all demonic presence from this world, that you'll vanquish all your enemies, including sin and death, and that we will be in the presence of unmitigated power used for your glory and ultimately our good. I pray that you'll help us to trust in your use of power, but also your character. Lord, if anyone had all power in the universe, Lord, I, our heart, may our heart say we're glad it's you. And Lord, when things are somewhat out of our control and we do feel powerless, help us not to be afraid, but to draw close to you who is sovereign and in control of all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.